As we prepare to hear God's word together, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. As we turn this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 32, today we begin a new section, a new series that we are going to really enjoy digging into together. This is a section of scripture that is traditionally known as a song of Moses. So let us let me read for you a section of it, really just the beginning portion of it, and then we will pray and dig in to consider God's word together. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herbs. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare as your people, who are gathered here in the name of Jesus to open up and consider your word. We implore you, God, to be with us at this time. It is always our desire when we open your word that you would be pleased to attend to your word with the power of your spirit, taking these truths and working them and weaving them into the hearts and minds of your people. God, we uh, joyfully come to this time Remembering that the word that you've given us, indeed all that is written, has been written down for our instruction, for our warning, for our correction, on whom the end of the ages have fallen. And so we thank you that these wonderful and blessed and ancient words have power and pertinence even in our lives today. We pray, I pray God that you'll grant for me to speak your word very simply, very faithfully, and very clearly. Give, oh give God your people, ears to hear, that they may attend to your word and grasp what you would have them lay hold of from your truth this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I mentioned just moments ago before the prayer that this section that we turn to is traditionally called a song of Moses. Now, what I'm going to propose to you today is that it's not actually a song of Moses. We traditionally also, and even the scriptures do at times, call the law, the law of Moses. But I ask you, did Moses write the law? Or did God himself give the law to Moses and Moses wrote it down. There's a difference between writing something down and being its author. Yes, we're able to make that distinction, correct? This is not a song of Moses. If I wanted to keep it simple, I might call it a song for Moses. But God makes it clear that this song is going to be delivered to the children of Israel through Moses. So it's not even ultimately a song for Moses. It's a song for the children of Israel throughout their generations. 
It was to be a song that they would know and know well and memorize. It was supposed to be the kind of song that they would be so inundated with this song and its tune and its message that it would just resonate in their minds all the time. That when there was a moment of silence and a moment of distraction, the, that the tune and the message and the song that they might hum and sing would be this song. Now, I want us to begin to consider this, and I, I, I guess uh, by way of introduction, who wrote this song? That's our first question, our first point. Now, I've already kind of given it away, but in case we're missing it, now, maybe it's also a little deceptive, and I, 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 deceptive does not mean deceitful, per se. We're going to spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy 31 in preparation for the unfolding of chapter 32. Okay, So go back with me in chapter 31 to verse 19, and this is what God is saying to Moses. Now, therefore, write this song. Okay, so who's writing it down? And who's telling him what song to write down? Who's the lyricist? Who's the author? God, Moses is going to write it down, but this song is given by God. Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that they, this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Which is why in the introduction I called it a song of testimony. A, a song of testimony and witness against the children of Israel. That this is who God is. This is what God would have them do. And they'd be singing that song while doing something different. You know, which is not, not confusing to us because... There are a lot of Christian songs, particularly some of the more modern songs that will, may often say things like this. I lift my hands to the coming king. You ever heard songs that say things like that? And how many times do people say, I lift my hands while hands are not being lifted? <laughs> right? Or I lift my voice. I lift my voice. You're not lifting your voice. You're mumbling. Where, where, where practically what I'm saying is our words are saying one thing, but the, we're not lifting our voice. We're not lifting our hands. We're not bending our knees. We're, not, we're saying things, but we don't mean them. How many times have people, and I'm not saying you in general, but you know people who might be guilty of such, sung things like this. All to Jesus, I surrender, while in reality, most everything they are holding fast to themselves. They're holding on to their desires and their pleasures and their wants while singing, all to Jesus, I surrender. Is that healthy? Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm just, it's just a song. Everybody's singing. I have to join in. There is something about the worship and song that's not supposed to just be the fruit of our lips. It's not just supposed to be the moving of our lips while our hearts are far away. All song, all prayer, 
all reading of scripture and consideration of it, we are to give our whole man to. And this, the idea of song is no different. So the substance of the song is significant. And the substance of the song ought to be consistent with the way that people would see our lives. Indeed, with the way that God, above all, sees our lives. And so, when we say, who wrote this song, the writer of this song is God. Moses wrote it down much like he wrote the Ten Commandments, much like he wrote the book of the law. He was entrusted to take dictation. But he was not the one. But not only was he entrusted to take dictation, his responsibility was to teach this song to the people. Now, to me, one of the sad realities is this. We have the lyrics to the song. I would have loved to have contemplated its original melody <laughs> and, and how, how it went. And how it flowed. One of the things that does happen and one of the things that we do realize is sometimes things are easier to commit to long-term unbreakable memory if you memorize them in the context of songs. I was speaking with someone uh, recently who they've been uh, working with their small children through a song where they have memorized the order of all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah. And I smiled mildly impressed as I contemplated my inability to just rattle those off. <laughs> and it, but they've locked them in. And sometimes simple little things like that that you locked in. Uh, uh, my daughter, who's now approaching 22 years old, it, when she was young, she, she learned by singing the Hebrew alphabet. She doesn't know Hebrew. She probably could not recognize what specific letter is being given if a Hebrew letter was shown. But if you tell her, do you know the Hebrew alphabet? She will start. Aleph, bet, ten, gimel, dalet, chech, en, and Zion, and on and on singing but by putting it to a tune it stuck for decades now she's able to just recite those things without any reference without any point but that's the power at times that music has to lock things in this is not to just mindlessly recite sounds this is that you would say these things over and over again, that you would lock in the meaning of it. Not only that, I want to be clear, there's weird language in this. When I, Weird language sometimes comes up because they're a different era, a different culture, and they use different figures of speech than we do. He tells Moses, still in 31 verse 19, not only is he to teach this song to them, which could take a long time. For some of us learning new songs, do we know it instantly? Some pick it up faster than others, and it all depends if it's a brief chorus and how overtly repetitive it is. That'll, that will all play into it, but what if it is a really long song without repetition, like this one? This is a big song. This is not something you, that you're going to likely teach them at a single sitting. Listen to this, and then it's going to be your turn. Ready? Ready? 
No! He would have to sing it to them again and again, and they'd pick up, let's sing the first line together. And they'd sing the first line together. All right, now the next line is like this. Let's sing the second line together. Now let's join them, first and second line. And this would be an intensive labor, and some of you probably have done this kind of thing. It was a lot of work. Further, he says, the language he says there is, put this song in their mouth which if you're being too literal, is a very uncomfortable thought. But the idea is this. Every single one of them has to learn it. No one can, be, no one can just be the quiet. And this happens. Some of you have been in church settings, chapel settings, whatever it may be, and somebody's not singing. Somebody's not joining in. It happens even in in. I don't know if it still happens in schools that people say the Pledge of Allegiance to start the day. Some, in some places and in some eras, that's how it happened. And it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to fling the hand up there. And, and nothing really is participating in that. Well, this was not, he was not to allow any non-participation. You put it in their mouth. If someone's not saying it, if someone's not getting it, you got to keep teaching it. Everybody has to be involved. The put it in their mouth, we don't like this notion, means this is a forcible thing. I don't want it. Imagine if you would a small child. And you got yourself some mashed peas. And the child is saying... I don't want it. And what is the mother saying? You got to eat it. Open your mouth. Ah, ah. And and what's going to happen is the parent is going to ultimately put it in their mouth. They're going to force it upon the child. Now, it's not not a force of uh, brutality. It's not a force of abuse. It's not a force to, to ruin. The, the reason why it is being forced on the child is because it is good for the child. It will benefit them. It will nourish them. It is good and suitable and helpful for them. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't know it. But the parent knows it is good. It is valuable. And I am sticking this in your mouth. And it better not come back out. Whereas, the song, now the analogy is too strong, the song is to come back out, okay? It's to go deep down within and fill you, as well as, remarkably, not like food, join in song coming outwardly. So, we know now who wrote this song, God wrote this song. So instead, we could say a song of the Lord through Moses for the people of Israel. But that would be a long title in your Bible above the chapter. And so it's, it's still going to end up forever saying a song of Moses. Second thought. I want us to ask. Why was this song written? Let us consider the times first of all. Into which this song was written. In chapter 31 verse 14 says this. And most of us this never happens to. God says... It says, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days are approaching when you must die. 
that's not the kind of thing you're hoping to hear every day. The days are approaching when you must die. And then he tells him that he's going to commission Joshua and bring him and present him. Verse 16, again, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Okay. Again, those are not our common phrases. Lie down with your fathers. Fathers is plural, which is your father, your father's father, and the father, father before that. Moses at this time is 120 years old. Not a young man. He's about to die. He tells him, you're going to lay down with your fathers means you are being put into a grave. It's a figure of speech because he's not going to be buried even in the same location. But it is coming. It is happening. It is done. And listen to what he says next in verse 16. Then this people will rise so you will lie down with your fathers and when you go down these people will rise up he's using this this uh, play of language in opposites there that that's very poetic you will lie down they will rise up and and whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering they will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them. And hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them. So that they will say in that day. Have not all these evils come upon us. Because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day. Because of all the evil that they have done. Because they have turned to other gods. So the times into which God is saying this. Is a time where the children of Israel. They all know who God is. They are not worshiping at this moment any other gods. They have, though, had their eyes fixed on Moses. And this is a sad thing that happens among mankind. Their eyes were so fixed on Moses, you do remember, that when he went up to the mountain to get the rest of the law, after God speaking the Ten Commandments, went up to the mountain to get the rest of the law and was gone for 40 days. God himself had told them, you shall make no other gods, no foreign gods, no graven images. Moses is gone for 40 days, and they said what? As for this man, we don't know what's happened to him. We don't know where he's gone. So, instead of, I would think the logical thing would be, so let's choose another man to be our leader. But the children of Israel proved at times, most times, to be unreasonable. They didn't say, let us choose another man to be our leader. We don't know what's happened to this man. Let us make for ourselves gods. Wait a second. Even if Moses is gone, who's not gone? God's not gone. God's the one who had spoken to them the Ten Commandments. God's the one who, through Moses, had brought the plagues who through Moses and Aaron had, had delivered them through the sea on dry ground, but their tendency, instead of looking at God and living for God, was to look at the man who served God. No! Men are just men. And men will fall 
and men will stumble. And too often, people, even in the context of churches, will say, I believe this because this man says it. If what this man says, further, if what this man says does not match up with what God says, you follow God and not me or any other man. Because we don't have a right to change it or twist it at all. And so Moses is about to die, and God says when he does, the children are going to rise up and forsake, break the covenant, go astray, follow other gods. Now I ask you this. How does God know that? And hopefully you're in your mind answering, because God knows everything. <laughs> he knows absolutely everything before it happens. And if he wants to, he can change it, influence, alter it in any way he wants, because all power belongs to God. But God says this is going to happen, even doubles up on it and expands on it. Jump down with me in chapter 31 to verse 20. Listen as I read. For when I have brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey. So I'm, gonna, I'm still going to give them all of these blessings, which I swore to their fathers. And when they have eaten and are full and have grown fat, the phrasing is, they have just enjoyed and even indulged on the benefits and provisions that God has given, and as they are there basking in the benefits that God has given them, they're going to turn away from Him. They're loving the benefits, and so, and, but their hearts are not given to God. So the, they will have grown fat and full on what God has provided for them. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. Verse 21, and when all these evils and troubles will come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. This song shall be a testimony against them as a witness. I mean, that's what this song was meant to be. A testimony against them that they themselves would be singing their own confrontation, their own condemnation because God is God. He has led them. He has given them. He has provided. He has instructed and they have walked away. The song was to serve that powerful pur purpose. Moses was about to die. The times Moses was about to die. The people would then turn and the people would fully and foolishly despise and forsake God, breaking his covenant and following nothing, what are not God's. And it would be a testimony against them. Also look down. So verse 19 had said this. this at the end of verse 19, this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Verse 21 says, This song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. This is supposed to become the song that everyone knows from generation to generation. A song that just everybody knows it. Which 
we don't have a lot of songs like that. But generally speaking, though it's of no particular value per se, but most people, no matter where they are, in America, I hope, know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Is it true? Does anyone here not know that song? I'm trying to scour my mind for a song. This is a song that everyone would know and that immediately, if you hear that tune, dun, 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 dun. does anyone know what that song is? Let's play a guess the song. How many people would miss that one? Shouldn't. That sort of familiarity that it is familiar with universal totality was to be this song. Now, I will say this. This is complicated because the song we're about to begin looking at today is way more intensive than Twinkle Twinkle, Little Star, which I never even thought about what that song might even be conveying. But what this song is conveying is very clear, and I want us to... to and what we're going to do today is just look at the introduction to this song. So we've seen who wrote it, God. We've seen why the song was written, because Moses was about to die. And then soon the children of Israel would walk away. And this song would serve as a testimony and witness to remind them of who God is, what he's done, what he's called them to be, and what they're doing. And how different that is. And now let us look, beginning, at the song that he sang. Now, I was confused initially when I looked at verse, the last verse of chapter 31. I know you thought we were in 32 now, but we're almost there. It says this. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished. Oh, is this a spoken word song? You know, we've got a lot of modern songs in our era that are spoken word songs. No, that's not what this is. The, the word there for spoke is a vast word in the Hebrew, which includes the idea of singing. So Moses lays out, basically sings this song to them. Listen, spoke the words of this song until they were finished. So initially, I'm not giving you bite-sized pieces. Today, you're going to hear the whole tune. He was, not me. Today, you're only getting a bite size. He was saying, this initial hearing, you're hearing the whole song and all that it has to say. You consider it, and then we're going to start working on you getting this and you owning these things. And it says, he spoke the words of the song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So he made sure that this would, he, even there, be careful with all Israel. The, there was a multitude of them by now. In previous verses, it gives the context that all of the leaders of the clans and tribes had been gathered. So the nature of this is he was going to teach them, and then they were going to go out and teach the rest of them. But everyone was to hear it, and everyone was to know it, and he gave them all the words. He could not skip a verse. He could not skip a part. It's not been uncommon in church history, past and present, as indeed a man may be preaching through a section of Scripture to get to a controversial passage. But, I mean, how can any part of Scripture be controversial? God's Word 
all scripture is profitable for doctrine reproof, we there should be no portion of it that we just disregard, that we just cast aside, that we would be ashamed of or embarrassed of. Every bit of scripture, every word of God proves true. As it tells us in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. But he sang this song, and now we begin chapter 32, and we'll just see the first four verses. The song begins like this. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear my words, the words of my mouth. So the first thing that he says is a little bit confusing. Who is he singing to? Well, he says, heavens and earth. And I want to ask you this. Does the moon have ears? Do trees have ears? So what is going on here? Uh, you know, let, let's, let's unfold this a little bit. Now, some men and teachers of the past had said what he's really trying to do is he's call, initially beginning this calling out to unliving, inanimate objects to show that even they're going to listen, but the children of Israel won't listen, <laughs> which is a fun thing to think about, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Often what, when the scriptures use those two things, those are bookend phrases, I might say. Heaven and earth, beginning and end, alpha and omega, right? First and the last, the highest and the lowest. These are bookend phrases. When he says heaven and earth, he's really calling forth that all creation would bear witness to it. That would be the totality of all that God has made. Now, the heavens would be the heavens and all that is in it. The earth and all that is in it. So he's calling the angels to pay attention. He's calling the fallen angels to pay attention. He's calling the people. He's calling everyone. This is, God is wanting it to be known that he who created all things, indeed, as this song is being sung, that everything that exists bears witness to who God is and how they, the children of Israel, have failed and turned away from God. He's calling for the vast totality of witness. Even if we think about it, Deuteronomy chapter 4, same book of the Bible, different chapter, verse 26 says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Now, if that is literal, that would be the kind of witness I want against me. Heaven, what do you got to say? Just hear wind. Earth, what do you got to say? All right, no witnesses against me. You don't hear, but this is not what it's saying. All that is in heaven and all that is in earth, all that is observed, all that is seen as witnesses against this day. In chapter 4, verse 39 of Deuteronomy, know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. Okay, things are getting quite stronger there. Because when heaven is witnessed, who is the highest of heaven? God 
And so if heaven is called as witness, do you know who's also witnessing? Now, when God testifies, is any other witness required? No. He could actually shatter the mighty without investigation, but he wants them to know. And what's also interesting is the scriptures, even when it lays it out, God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And even when God made man, he made it with this peculiar intricacy between men and the creation so that when, when men fell into sin, I ask you, did it have an effect on the earth? Yes, as a result of man's sin, now when he would work, it would be by the sweat of his brow, and the, and the land would bring forth thorns and thistles. It would become problematic, and, and things wouldn't be as convenient and comfortable as they were before, where every day things were perfectly satisfied and moisturized by the dew that God would provide from heaven. Now what would happen subsequent to the fall? You would after a season, have a severe flood. Indeed, a severe flood that would encompass what? The whole earth because of the sinfulness of man. You would have famines, pestilence, peril, drought, all of these problems. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the, the earth itself groans awaiting the revelation of the sons of man. That there is an intricate link. And indeed, when we think of it, when all is said and done and God is going to raise us as his resurrected children to share in the glory of Christ in our glorified bodies, this earth will be dissolved and there will be a new heaven and new earth put in its place when God completely makes all things new, Right? And so there's this remarkable connection that takes place with all creation and all creatures. And he's saying, you are held absolutely accountable. Now let's keep going. Not only do we see... Uh, this statement. The second verse says this. So, so it begins by we see that all creation listens and bears witness and you're accountable. Second thing we see is in verse 2. It says, may my teaching drop as wine. Or um, if I, the, the nature of the Hebrew word here, it's a complicated grammar statement. But it's, it's may my teaching drop as wine or let my teaching uh, drop as rain, or let my teaching fall as rain. He's talking about he's sending, going to send forth this teaching. How is it going to be received? means if rain falls and, and, and it falls upon the ground, but the ground never soaks it in, is it going to benefit the plants or the roots in any way? No, it, it needs to fall and it needs to have its full effect. It needs to be drinking in. And so, so what I love about this is though that this, this song is being stated, that its ultimate purpose is it's going to serve to confront them in their disobedience, but we can still see the sweetness of our God in his kindness, saying, I'm giving you this. I'm sending you my word and my warning like the rain. Let it come upon you gently. 
Let it come upon you and have its full effect. Because again, if you think about it, if the rain comes down and it soaks in, and then a little more rain comes the next day and it soaks in, all is good, right? But imagine if rain came down and none of it soaked in. And then rain came down again and none of it soaked in. And then rain came down again and none of it soaked in. What's happening? Other than my hand is not getting as low as before. The water is filling up to flooding. It's either going to be received in a way that is beneficial. Even the gentlest of repetitive rains, if, it was, if it's not taken in, would become cumulatively dangerous. Right? Imagine the idea if it, if, it, if it gently falls in a place, but a dam is holding it in place, you're still fine. But once that's broken, what's going to happen to all that water? It's going to pour forth. And so here's the, there's a sweetness in this warning that the teaching is given. The design is not to destroy. The teaching of God's word, when God gives its word, it is to correct it is to cultivate. It is to nourish. Listen, just consider briefly the sweetness of those words. May my teaching or let my teaching drop as rain. My speech distill as dew. Like the gentle rain upon the tender grass. And like the showers upon the herb. Those things that are necessary. Those things that are beneficial. And that's the idea. We've got to be willing to, to recognize ourselves. We're in dependence. We're in need. We need God's teaching to grow and to flourish. He gives it to us that will cultivate us, that will grow. If we, if we don't respond to it, if we don't receive it, then what's that same word going to ultimately do? It's either going to cultivate us or it's going to confront us and condemn us. Jesus said, I don't judge you, but when I come, the words that I have spoken will judge you. It's very clear. Men will, now, ultimately when he comes, he will be the judge, but it's not an arbitrary judgment. It's a judgment based on the sound and clear revelation that God has given us through his word. So we, we now I move on to the next point because... Ah, it's just so wonderful. So the song has just begun with that simple introduction that I call heaven and earth a universal witness and testimony. Secondly, let this, may this be beneficial and cultivate good nourishment and growth in you because, and now he really begins the, the heart and the meat of the song. And it simply starts like this. For I will proclaim... Or some older translations there say, publish the name of the Lord. Now part of the challenge is that when we see that, what does he mean? I, for I will proclaim, the, is he just going to be the Lord? What does that do? What does that accomplish? You're, gonna, you're just going to publish this? You're just going to the name of the Lord. What does that do? Now, that's partly, again, because we're in a different language. Here, most of your translations, if you look closely, the word Lord there will be in all capitals. That is a, a, a language 
note for us so that we understand, because there are a couple different words that can be translated Lord and sometimes are translated Most High God, right? So there's, there's words like Adonai. There's words like Elohim for God. There's words like uh, uh, Elion. We have wonderful words in the scriptures. This is the word that is known as the tetragrammaton, which is just a fun thing to say. Now, for just as a simple lesson, it's very important to note this. Um, when we say, for example, we say God, and we reference our God, don't we? But when we refer to false gods, do you know what we, word we just used as well? The word God, right? Their God is this. They worship this God. They worship that God. And we're using the same word God for that which is false and that which we know to be true. And the word God it, it seems to have a diff, different idea. Not here. This particular word, the tetragrammaton, was a word that was exclusive, extraordinary, and unique to this God, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself in Christ, the God who brought about our salvation through his work on the cross. This is the God. Now, the tetragrammaton, it's called that because in Hebrew, it is four letters, for as a reference to, to tetra. Now, in some of our translations, most of us will be familiar with the, the Latinization and Anglicization of this word in modern times, which is Jehovah. Right? Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh. We've heard that term. Jehovah. Now, just as a simple lesson, the Tetragrammaton, this was a word that the children of Israel, it was such an exclusive name of God. In, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says to God, uh, when I go there to deliver the children of Israel, um, who shall I say sent me? Because here are the children of Israel living for 400 years in an idolatrous pagan society with a multitude of different gods in Egypt. Which one? Uh, and how are they going to, when I say God sent me, what are they going to, they're going to say, which one? How do I do this? And God said, you tell them, Yahweh sent you, or Jehovah sent you. Now, the reason why we would pronounce it Yahweh the tetragrammaton, if you change the vowels to the vowels for Adonai, then you get Jehovah. Because the, the, the practice was this. For the children of Israel, whenever they were reading the law, and when the scribes and Levites would read from the Old Testament, they were afraid to say this name. Because they thought, if I say this name, and my heart is not pure, I might die. God might strike me dead. So whenever they would get to this place in the scriptures, instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Adonai. And so as time went by and it got modernized and changed into Latin and English, they took the Yahweh and the Adonai and blended them together to get Jehovah. So that's how that kind of happened. But the whole point is that phrasing is also this. More literally, not only you tell them Yahweh, but if you look at Exodus 3, it says I am that I am. 
you tell them that I am sent you. Which is, that's what Yahweh means. God. Some people don't like the term self-existent because the entomology of existence means ex, come out of, come into existence. So some people like to say, I don't even want to say God exists because that means he came out of something. Blah, 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 whatever. People like to fight over nonsense. But the point is the ever-present, the ever-real, the ever and always existing one through whom everything has come into existence that exists and by whom everything that exists continues to exist. If not for him, all ceases. Everything is upheld even now by the word of his power, is it not? If God, it tells us in the book of Isaiah, if God, even in the book of Job, was to withdraw his breath to himself, even now, what would happen? All would perish alike. God is the one who upholds it all. So basically he said, I will proclaim the name God, the Lord, Yahweh. I'm just going to state this out there and I'm going to keep saying this to them where their mind will be inundated this with this reality. There is one eternal God who has always existed and no other. And you owe everything in your existence to him. Everything you've received, every benefit and blessing as they would come into the land and grow fat on it. Everything. He is the source of all that is. And I'm going to just keep saying that. He exists and through him all exists. Through him, you exist. And so by saying again, Yahweh, Yahweh, it wasn't just the repetition of the Lord. It was the reminder of our absolute and eternal dependence upon God. He made me. He gave me life. He gives me everything. And therefore, I owe him everything. Because apart from him, I'm nothing. And I have nothing. I will proclaim the name of God. So it was just as simple as Yahweh. It would be just like the one true God. The maker of everything. The one who holds me accountable and whom I'm dependent upon in every moment for everything. Yahweh. Don't you wish people thought of God like that today? That when we would speak of God, our minds would, would speak of our absolute dependence and need and his, of his greatness and authority. And that he deserves, indeed, rightly owns everything. Now the rest of the section we're just going to zip through. Then it, this is what I will proclaim. And then he calls them to ascribe greatness to our God. The uh, older translations there might say, give ye glory. Uh, the, the term here isn't a term glory. It's a term for greatness, magnitude, praise, and excellence. Because he is. And because everything that is, is because he is. Ascribe to him 
the supremacy, the exalted magnitude, the complete greatness of everything. Uh, what, what is it? You know, the philosophers used to come up with nonsense notions. Uh, I think, therefore I am. No! God is, therefore you are. Otherwise, you would not be. Really, you're going to attribute the source of your existence and the proof of it to your thoughts and your ability to ponder? I dare say this. Animals who can't contemplate such thoughts still exist, and they will bite you. Further, the next statement, is it really just seems to come out of nowhere. Verse 4. So, ascribe to the Lord greatness, and then all of a sudden it just says this. The rock. Where did that come from? Give ye glory to God, the rock. Now, what's interesting is, we live in a world in which we use the phrase rock. This person is my rock. I can lean upon them. I can depend upon them. I can trust in them. There's even celebrities who take upon themselves said terminology and will call themselves the rock and i must tell you very clearly no the fellow who thinks himself a rock and everybody considers a rock and maybe compared to most other men in his vicinity he's a little bit more physically superior but you know what? There's always going to be someone superior to him. And if he was to come up against a real rock, the term here for rock is not a small term. It is a term for that which is an absolutely massive boulder or, or the outcropping of a cliff. I tell you, if a cliff fell on the rock, who wins? <laughs> exactly it's over he's demolished he's finished because even then this rock the physical earthly temporary man calling himself by that name what's he going to be like in another 30 years right he's going to reach his peak and pinnacle who's going to be probably pretty strong against most individual attacks but there's going to come a time where decline takes place and he weakens and his body doesn't function as he does and he wonders why can't I bench what I benched why can't I run as far as I run what, what what's going on and here's the answer you ain't no rock you're just a man God is the rock, immovable, unchanging, unbreakable, undefeatable. God is the rock. For the children of Israel, a rock would be a reference to a source of stability. And our God is stable. There's no shavering, there, uh, there's no shivering, no wavering. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever he doesn't change his attitude he doesn't change his laws he does he's not uh, somebody who vacillates he is faithful and trustworthy and consistent steadfast further the idea of a rock would be something that in the time of a storm in the time of a danger a tempest a trial you go hide in the rock 
you flee to the rock and it would provide for you protection. It would be a refuge. It would be a fortress. Even the scriptures at times speak of honey that would come out of a rock. And so the phrase, it, it was a, a place of, of delight. It was a place of comfort, a place of strength, a place of stability, a place of protection. It was a, 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 an idea that for the Jew had a lot of practical experiential breadth. He's saying, no, no, no. Your pleasure, your delight, your protection, your refuge, the, the unmoving, the stable, the, sh the sure, the enduring. He's the rock. Every other rock will crumble. He alone is the rock. Even we know as we move for further into scriptures, Jesus himself is presented as a rock. Indeed, a stumbling stone that people would stumble over. And trip, and the rock people can stumble over, or the rock can fall on them and crush them. Or by the grace of God, we can build our house upon the rock. And then when the storm comes, what happens? It's not like the rock that's built on the shifting sand, it is stable and sure, and it holds up. Our God, the rock. Ooh, we have much more to say. And I do not want to rush it. So we're just going to end with those, I, those three ideas initially in the song as it moves to God. I will proclaim your name, Yahweh, the existent one through whom all exist. I will call people to ascribe to you greatness, the greatness that is due to your name. You are the singular, alone, the only rock. Immovable, unbreakable, unshakable, sure, steadfast, solid. You're our God. And so when the song begins, you know what the first thing is? It's not even on God's laws. It's not in, on their unfaithfulness. The first thing in the song that begins after calling witness and speaking of the value of the teaching is this. Set your mind on God. Consider who he is. God first. God before all. God above all. We must be a God-centered people. All right, let's pray, and then we will take up again here next week when we come together. Lord, we are ever thankful for your word and the privilege that we have to spend time in it. Sometimes it's a, a struggle because we do have limited time, and the richness of your word is so much, but we thank you for the privilege to gather and contemplate a few things. I pray the things that we've considered today, you would just help us to digest them and really begin to process how we think and how we live. And God, that you would be first and foremost above all in our thoughts and minds. And that everything else in our decisions and our desires and actions will flow out of that unchangeable reality. You do exist I exist because of you. All that's in my hands is given to me by you. Every talent, every ability, every opportunity. And let me use it for your name, for your praise, for your glory, for your pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.